What a delight it is to be in the house of the Lord on a Wednesday evening. I am tremendously excited to witness and celebrate the confirmation of these dedicated servants of the Lord. I've been thinking a lot lately of the passage in Hebrews where the congregation is encouraged to be a joy to their leaders instead of a burden. And this group of men and women has truly been a joy to serve these past nine months. Now, I know that many here, myself included, are not terribly familiar with the rite of confirmation. I was confirmed as an adult a few years back, but I didn't grow up in a tradition that confirmed folks to the church. And so it's been a bit of a learning curve for me this past year to practice telling people succinctly what it is, what it's all about. And now I have my little elevator pitch down. Um, There are a lot of good ways to describe confirmation but I usually talk about it this way. Confirmation is a way of strengthening one's relationship with God, strengthening one's relationship with the church, and preparing for the release of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands for mission and witness. And as we've moved through the preparation course for confirmation these past months, We've not simply taken classes. We've really worked to stretch ourselves into the areas where God is calling us to grow. I think especially of the risks our confirmants have taken to follow Jesus deeper into mission and witness out of love for their neighbor. And I've appreciated and benefited from the opportunity to face into our fears and insecurities those we have when it comes to mission and witness. Our shared home, Chicago, is a beautiful city full of beloved people. And Chicago, like the rest of our nation, is also a sharply divided, highly pressurized, and occasionally hostile place. For many reasons, these are challenging times to be heeding the call of Jesus, calling us into mission and witness. So tonight we're turning to scripture to see what our brothers and sisters in similar circumstances made of this same task. We'll spend just 10, 12 minutes tonight um, here in 1 Peter, and we're going to focus, we're going to end up focusing on just one verse. But as you go ahead and turn to that passage in your Bibles or your bulletin, um, we'll talk a little bit about the context of this letter. Peter wrote this letter to believers, exiles, he calls them several times. Believers in five geographic territories, and even though all five territories are located in present-day Turkey, they spanned a couple different continents, and the believers there represented a wide variety of ethnicities and cultures, just like Chicago. The two things they shared in common, the believers in these territories, were their love for Jesus and their residence in the Roman Empire. And at the time that Peter was writing, the attitude of the Roman Empire towards Christian was mixed. Periodically, in some regions, hostilities would flare against Christians, and Christians might be beaten and even martyred. But by and large, in these territories at that time, nobody really cared too much if the Christians wanted to add another god into the Roman pantheon of gods. That was no big deal. But when there came a conflict between the values of the empire and the values of the kingdom of God, there would be intense pressure 
to conform to the status quo. At the point where Christians looked and behaved differently from their neighbors, wherever it became clear that their allegiance was to Jesus and not to the local agenda, they were regarded as a nuisance and potentially a threat to societal stability and disapproval and insults and the occasional lawsuit would follow. Maybe this sounds a little bit familiar. As I look for ways to love my neighbors in Chicago more boldly with the love of Christ, I do not expect to be assaulted. (laughs) I am conscious, though, that single-hearted allegiance to Jesus cuts across many of the tightly held values of many of my fellow citizens on all sides of the political spectrum. And while I very much wish to escape the disapproval and insults of my fellows, I also really want the people around me to be able to see Jesus and to know him. And I know this is the case for many, most, possibly all here tonight. Our confirmants are publicly committing to follow Jesus and are already being filled by the Holy Spirit with love of neighbor. They have already determined to say no to the temptation to try to blend in. It's no longer an option to try to recruit Jesus to fall in line with the goals and strategies that have nothing to do with him. And praise God for that clarity. But there are still puzzles ahead. As followers of Jesus, if our distinctive words and deeds set us apart from neighbors in ways that just draw attention to ourselves, whether negative or positive attention, what good does that do? The clear teaching of Scripture is to live holy lives set apart for the glory of a holy God. And we want that, don't we? But how in the world does that connect with our unchurched neighbors. If we hold ourselves apart from what the Apostle Paul once called the flood of debauchery in the world around us, won't that be misunderstood as standoffishness or judgment? What's the difference between being holy and being holier than thou? I think that tonight's scripture helps provide a through line for us, a way of seeing how God's call to set us apart for himself is deeply and integrally connected to his desire for us to help others draw near to him. Let's look now at the beginning of verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Even this small slice of scripture is heavy with the power and the authority and the glory of God as he breathes out his truth into our anxious selves. There's nothing here about strategic good deeds or learning how to showcase our distinctives. Instead, we are learning about what God is doing and about who we are in Christ. Jesus is alive and seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is choosing people to form a new race. He is ennobling a priesthood to serve him. He is sanctifying a holy nation. We are God's special possession. 
When we are called out by God, we undergo an identity change and a change of purpose. And this work is done by God in us. We are chosen, royal, holy. We are a new race with a new occupation and a new national allegiance. We belong to God. So these things, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, these are not things we do. These are descriptions of who we are in Christ Jesus. And of course, becoming that chosen race, that royal priesthood, holy nation, does involve actively following Jesus and striving to obey him. We become then a chosen race. Each of us called from what, where we were born into a particular culture, cultural, ethnic, racial identities. And when we become Christ's own, we preserve what scripture calls the gifts of the nations. Those aspects of our earthly and human particulars which reflect the rich beauty and holiness of God. And we present those distinctives as a tribute to glorify God in his glorious house. But every earthly and human aspect of our individual cultures that is corrupt, that does not glorify God, that contributes to division and degradation, we leave behind us as we come together in unity to praise God as one race together. And we have a new occupation. God makes us priests, no longer content to attend merely to our own interests, we humbly take up the tasks of the priesthood, praying for the world and offering praises to God. We have a new national allegiance. While we continue to serve in the businesses and the schools and the governments and the households, the economies and the neighborhoods of the world, we infuse these temporary and passing institutions with the transcendent values, methods, and goals of the kingdom of God. Our allegiance to the coming eternal kingdom is what empowers and enables us to be a blessing to our present temporary home. So we labor with God in the easy yoke of Jesus in these new identities, these new occupations. And as we do, God reveals to us the impact and purpose that our new identities will have for the sake of the world. Again in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The work of God in us becomes the work of God through us. The thoughts and words and deeds of our mission and witness are not extra activities that we layer on top of the rest of our lives. Our whole lives are witness. When we make a Eucharistic offering of joy and thanksgiving in gratitude to the Lord. When the Lord says to us, you are my witnesses, we are witnesses indeed. Now, We might be rather dim, low-wattage witnesses occasionally, or we might be bright, glowing, high-wattage witnesses. Either way, it is our lives transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit with the Spirit of God flowing through us that becomes a proclamation of the excellencies of God. 
Now, we're used to thinking of a proclamation as a loud speech or announcement, and certainly we can shout about the goodnesses of God. But to proclaim here also means to display, to show forth, and even to celebrate the excellencies of God. Our lives, even our ordinary everyday lives, naturally display his excellencies as he transforms us and fills us. And excellencies is kind of an unusual word. I love how the glory of God gets kind of crammed in there, excellent. Um, But a useful way to understand it is to translate it as the mighty works of God. We proclaim the mighty works of God. And most especially and particularly, that is the mighty work of God in raising Christ from the dead. All the mighty works of God point to that mighty work and any mighty works of God done in us for our salvation, for the salvation of our neighbors, flow from that mighty work. So all our little deeds are notable insofar as they reflect and point to these mighty works of God. Elsewhere in Scripture, Pastor Paul asks us to become blameless and pure, children of God that shine out like stars without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And this would be nonsense apart from the presence and the power of Jesus at work within us. We can do nothing apart from him. But in him, we become the very light of Christ. And this is very good news for our neighbors Just as we ourselves are nothing but the recipients of God's saving goodness, the same is true for them. Any holy brightness in our lives comes not from us, but through us, from God himself. And that draws then the worship of God up to him. Our simple, basic, ordinary lives of faith in Jesus are a proclamation of a holy God. Now, a while back, shortly before the pandemic lockdowns came, a friend that I'll call Andy asked me a question that I've been thinking about a lot uh, this past year on and off. Andy and I are the same age. We're the same race. We live in Chicago, and we both really enjoy hanging around with holy people. Other than that, we have very little in common, especially when it comes to our resources and life choices. Economically, educationally, socially, Andy and I don't have much in common. He has had very different options in life than I have, and he's made different choices. But often, when I host a group of God's people, I'll invite Andy because I know he enjoys their company. So this one particular day, Andy asked me this question. He said, why do you and your family hang out with someone like me. And I knew what he meant. I knew what he was asking, and I knew the answer, but the question made me uncomfortable, and I got flustered. I didn't like how his question hinged hinged on the differences between us. I didn't like how that made me feel um, guilt, superiority, inferiority, just a flood of like, ah, So I projected that anxiety on him, 
as if he was asking about that, and I dodged the question. So he said, why do your family and you enjoy hanging out with someone like me? And I just said, oh, Andy, we really enjoy you. We're really glad you're here. And that was true. We do enjoy Andy, and we were glad that he was there. But that was not an honest answer to his question, and we both knew it. He gave me a look, and he let me off the hook and changed the subject. Andy was not really asking about me or my family. Andy was asking about the excellencies of God. And I hope, as the worst of this pandemic recedes into the background a bit, that I will get to see Andy soon, and I hope I get a second chance to answer that question. If I do, I think what I would like to say is, Andy, our good and beautiful God has been kind and generous to me and my family. He loves us very, very much. We hang out with you because God loves you very, very much, too. And we want to enjoy the goodness of God together with you. Confirmants and beloved children of God, may the Lord bless you with confidence in the Holy Spirit to show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And may those who see your life of praise and good deeds glorify your Father in heaven. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.